Hello, and welcome to Co-op Cast, where game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly talk about cooperative board games. Join us each week as we break down one game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. How you doing? And today we have a special guest, Chris Kirkman from Dice Hate Me fame. Woo! Hello! Yay! <laughs> Welcome on the show, Chris. We're, we're really happy we could fit you on today, and especially to talk about a game in the Arkham Horror uh, sort of HP Lovecraft theme, Eldritch Horror. And we know uh, you're a big fan of that theme, having uh, designed a game in the same theme yourself. Yeah, so I'll, I will talk about Lovecraftian things to anybody at any time. So yeah, this should be good. <laughs> and this is part of our continuing series of bringing people on to talk about their favorite co-op game. We kind of feel like it's neat to find people who aren't necessarily consider themselves co-op fans talking co-op. Yeah, and I, I'm definitely falling to that category. Although I've become more of a fan of co-ops of late, I think, and I always say this, I think one of the reasons why I just got burned out of co-ops was, was pandemic. And because... It was just such a hot game for such a long time, and I had to play it so many times that I was just like, I'm done. And so co-ops kind of took a back seat to me, even though Arkham Horror was always one of my favorites. So that kind of saved the co-op genre. Um, you know, lately there have been some good ones, and you got some co-ops, of course, like Sentinels of the Multiverse, and we've got, you know, Eldritch Horror out now, and so many other ones that, that are really quality co-ops that they've, they've marched up. But I'm definitely more of a competitive game player than a co-op player. Well, and you've got one I'm looking forward to coming out next year, Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, now see that, that's that's what I'm talking about. That's some fun stuff because working with Matt and Ben on that game has been a blast. I've gotten you know I'm a chief storyteller, so I get to craft kind of what what is actually happening behind the scenes and and the story that's being told. So that's the fun part of co-ops is the actual story that can that can come out. And like you know we released Spirit Island from you know Greater the Games released Spirit Island has done really well. We just broke the top 100, and that's fun too because it's got variable player powers and it feels more crunchy than a regular co-op. Oh man, and Spirit Island is an amazing game. That's uh, what was, was that number two for? No, it tied for number one with Gloomhaven oh, right. last it did year. For number one. So we took oh, a wow. poll, not just us, but others in the community of what their top co-op game was last year, and Spirit Island tied with Gloomhaven. So congratulations! Wow, that's this great, is a fantastic, yeah, game. fabulous job on that. And there, there's no way that's not making its way to at least the top twenty, if not higher. I think as uh, <laughs> as time goes on and as more copies get in distribution, it's it's a fabulous game. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been that's been I think our biggest hurdle was the fact that of course it the, the Kickstarter did fairly well, but we were only able to order so many for the first print run, and then it just came out of the gate super hot, and so we had to make sure we were trying to you know keep it in in circulation, and I think it might have harmed it just a little bit toward the end of the year because it wasn't in, as wide a circulation as, as say like Gloomhaven and some other the games, but now it's getting into more hands, and of course it's broke the top one hundred, so there's no telling where it's going to go from here. Nah, it's so great. So is it back in print now? I believe that we... It's it, it's so quick between printings that we do that one for now. I believe it is. Yeah, and I, I think I've seen uh, copies on Amazon for a reasonable price, which would seem to indicate... Yeah, we're, we're constantly, like, as soon as yeah, as soon as soon the, the, the printing comes in, we're, we're just pulling the trigger order more so we can keep keep them rolling out, especially when we do pre-sales for distribution. And we've managed to, I think, on the last printing pretty much sell the entire printing before it arrived. So, oh my gosh, that's great. Yeah, so that worked out pretty well. Yeah, so go out and get Eldritch Horror, or not Eldritch Horror, 
So go on. Well, you can get Eldritch Tar well, too. Well, well, we'll talk about that soon. Maybe you will want to get Eldritch Tar. <laughs> well, yeah. After you hear us, you'll probably want to go out and get Eldritch Tar. But also, definitely go get Spirit Island if you haven't played that game yet. It's amazing. Even if you want to play it solo, it's a great solo game. And I'm not a solo gamer, but that's one I'll play by myself even. And by the way, a quick quick story time for all the listeners out there. Something that's really special about having Chris on. And Chris, you're a little bit of my hero. I, I forget if I've told you this before or not. But for those who don't know, at one of the early unpubs, we brought Chris over to check out Salvation Road, which is the first game that we published. Not the first one we designed, but the first one that actually got published. And uh, Chris wasn't as interested in it as he thought AJ Porfirio from Van Ryder Games would be. And he's the one who set us up with AJ, got him over. He actually played in the first playtest with AJ, and it was a fabulous playtest and helped us to kind of get the game in AJ's mind, and eventually uh, he published it. So, Chris, you helped uh, put us on the map in terms of publishing, <laughs> so thank you so much, man. Well, uh, my pleasure. I knew that you know, knowing what kind of games AJ liked and what he was kind of looking for, I was like, he's got to get in on this play. And yeah, it, it, it worked the way I expected it to, so you know, it was awesome. I'm glad it worked out. Very cool. Well, thank you. All right, Chris. Well, why don't you let us know a little bit about your background, your history? I know you mentioned Arkham Horror. How did you get into this great hobby of ours? Oh, well, I, I've been playing games pretty much all my life. Uh, my my mom played games with me when I was a kid. I loved board games. Uh, and then, of course, I, I progressed into more complicated board games in middle school and high school. Played some role-playing games, got involved in like Car Wars, which was my biggest, uh, I guess, my earliest big game, crunchy game, getting involved in Car Wars, I think in 1987, and that was when I was in middle school, and uh, then progressed over to creating my own rule sets for Hero Quest and some games like that in high school, and so I've always just been involved in playing in that kind of that space, and then I kept playing in Warhammer 40k when I was in college, and then after college, uh, considering continuing to play in 40k, and of course Magic came out when I was in college as well, so. You know, it's just progressed one after the other, just leading all the way through. And then, and then of course, the uh, the Euro boom hit when Catan really took off in the U.S. And, and that introduced me to Euro games, and I got involved in those. And I've always been involved and fascinated with Lovecraft and Cthulhu. And the very first time that I was introduced to that, I think, was in 1987 as well. And it was a uh, short story by Alan Dean Foster called Some Notes Concerning a Green Box. And it was it was he wrote it as sort of a an in joke to send to uh, uh, the Durless Society, and but it was basically him talking as if he found these notes, and it's all basically a, a kind of a love letter to to Lovecraft and the stories and that surround it, and it got me fascinated. So I was I did some research and started looking into it, and then that's how I discovered Lovecraft. And uh, of course, when Arkham Horror came out, I was just like. This looks amazing. <laughs> uh, I had played, actually, I had played the original Arkham Horror way back in the day, uh, Richard's original design. Right, right. I think I had played that in college, and then Arkham was released in 2006, and I was like, yeah, I, I want to play this game. And it became, I think it still is my most played game. The original Arkham Horror? The, well, the, the re-release, the Fantasy Flight one. Right. Okay. That, that Red, Richard did with Kevin Wilson, yeah. Yeah, and if, from that point on, I've just been, you know, Cthulhu gaming has just been in my blood. Man, you're you're uh, you were you were bringing up a lot of old memories for me. I used to make uh, my own adventures for Hero Quest. I used to play 40k. I used to play. Um, what was the first one? Oh, Car Wars. I used to love Car Wars oh, and building yeah. all these like vans and trikes and all that stuff. I don't know if you've heard of Gaslands yet, but oh, Peter's got it, and uh, we're, yeah. we're going to play it next weekend. I think. Yeah, I've been playing that a lot. 
I've been customizing my cars. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but I've been customizing my Hot Wheels and Matchbox and everything. It's been awesome. Oh, that's awesome, Ed. Yeah, my buddy's got a 3D printer, and we've started printing up guns for it and everything. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so it's been really fun, and just the rules are so intuitive and, and play real fast and, and smooth. So It's it, awesome. It's I'm looking fun. forward to it. Yeah, and it's real quick for my sort of uh, Lovecraft background. I might have talked about this a bit in some of our previous Lovecraft reviews, uh, Arkham Horror LCG or Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, but I'm a huge Lovecraft fan. I've read, I think, just about all of his stories and short novels, most of them multiple times. I have not read, I think, almost any of the authors who came afterwards who kind of expanded the mm-hmm. uh, the mythos and added on some of the extra gods and stuff. But in terms of the like core original Lovecraft, I've read all of them a bunch. And yeah, I've been playing Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror, Arkham Horror LCG, Mansions of Madness. I, I love all those games. So definitely into that theme and the, the worlds he created. So what's your favorite story then? Gosh, I can't even remember the name of it. It's, 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 it's one of the shorter ones, but I just love how like quick and punchy it is. I can describe the plot to you really briefly. Basically, there's a, a guy, you're not really sure what's going on with him, and he's trying to climb this tower and escape from it, basically, and he's never seen, like, the light of day. He looks out the window, and all he sees is stars. And eventually, he, uh, he through this Herculean effort, he, he makes his way out of the tower, finds his way to the world of humans living above ground, and things don't go very well for him, not to, to spoil <laughs> the kind of surprise ending. But, uh, oh, man, that, that one just blows me away. I, I don't know, maybe during a break while one of you is talking, I'll go and grab one of my copies of uh, The Best of Lovecraft and <laughs> remind myself what the title of the story is. Yeah, that sounds great. I think I know which story you're talking about, but I don't remember the title either. He has a lot of shorter stories that are fascinating. Absolutely. And, you know, there's when you read all of his short stories, there's a little bit of sameness to them every mm-hmm. once in a while. But I, I yeah. still love, you know, I love reading him. I've read uh, pretty much all of the Robert E. Howard Conan stories and all that stuff. I'm... I'm into kind of like the relationship and the letters they sent between each other. So into that whole kind of time period of, of authorship and writing. Yeah. Uh, they were, it, it's that pulp, that classic American pulp literature era that has a lot of really high fantasy ideas and, and ideas that, that did not exist beforehand, which I think is a great portion of American literature. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm an English teacher, so I think some of my colleagues oh, might see go. that stuff as uh, trashy. But, you know, I, I don't I, I have appreciation for the trash sometimes. I think there's a lot of great stuff in there. I agree. And just to let everybody know, I don't know anything about <laughs> Cthulhu or I haven't read any of the HP Lovecraft stuff. So I am coming at it from a I know it through the Fantasy Flight lens. I know it through the Cthulhu role playing game lens. I know it through some of these other ones, Cthulhu Wars and Fate of the Elder Gods. But I don't know it through the actual reading of his stories. That's okay. I mean, you're just, you've kind of uh, grown up and, and uh, you know it through osmosis. That's right. And everybody talks about it so much that I feel like I've read a lot of his stuff. I think that's the way it is for a lot of people, especially gamers who, you know, I mean, you're so inundated with Cthulhu and Lovecraft and Cthulhu mythos in pop culture now that you probably feel like you like you have read some of it and you know enough about the mythos having played those games as much as anybody who's read the books cuz there's been so much adapted and added to it through the Cthulhu role playing game and Chaosium down to Arkham Horror and, and Launius crafting all that yeah and I'll be honest I'm enjoying reading through and and living through some of the stories in Arkham Living Card Game as well and that's a fantastic system too they've done a really good job with that absolutely by the way I I found it I was googling a bit 
Uh, The Outsider, for anyone who would like to go read it. I think it's available for free online. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, It's a really quick read. It's only uh, maybe 15 pages or so. Well, maybe that'll be my first Lovecraft. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, give it a try, man. You might enjoy it. There you go. All right. uh, I guess we should actually jump into our game discussion. So, uh, as we said before, the one we're looking at today is Eldritch Horror, Fantasy Flight's evolution on the Arkham Horror design, originally by Richard Launius, and then uh, kind of expanded and adapted by Launius and Kevin Wilson together. And now we've got Eldritch Horror, so uh, we're going to be looking at that one today. So, Mike, why don't you get into the backstory? Sure. So, this is (laughs) clearly, as we've been discussing within the H.P. Lovecraft mythos, Basic idea of a game of Eldritch Horror is that some great old one, this is uh, Cthulhu, Yig, Azathoth, all our favorites, all of them playing the old hits, they're, uh, they're using their cultists, summoning monsters, creating gates around the world, so it's very similar to the basic uh, core concept of Arkham Horror, except uh, expanded to a global scale. And basically, you're trying to solve the mysteries of how to banish the Great Old One before they awaken fully into our reality and destroy the world in some way. So it's a fully cooperative game with a variety of people from Fantasy Flight's kind of expanded uh, roster of characters that they use for all of their Mythos games. And you're working together to gain strength, get allies, get equipment keep the gates in check while you solve these mysteries and eventually hopefully banish the old one before they awaken. Sometimes if they awaken, you can even go in guns blazing and do a final battle to try to stop them. But uh, that's the basic theme. If you're familiar with the Fantasy Flight mythos, you're going to get the same thing here, just on a larger scale. Yeah, and I'll quickly go over the rules. You win the game if you solve three mysteries. So mysteries are things that pop up throughout the game and you have one at a time and you have to go around the map usually they revolve around gaining clue tokens and going to a certain location and maybe passing a skill test you'll lose the game if that ancient one awakens sometimes you just lose immediately and then sometimes some other things will happen that make the game accelerate another thing is you have a mythos deck which is basically the events in the game and if that deck ever runs out you immediately lose the game as well But the gameplay is pretty simply. There are three phases of the game. You do actions, then you have an encounter phase and a mythos phase. During the action phase, each character takes two actions. You can gain a ticket if you're in a city, which helps you move faster later. You can move, you can rest, you can trade items with other people. Or there is one action that we always play with. I don't know if you play with this, Chris, but the focus action, which comes with later expansions. Yeah. Now, this basically gives you rerolls. If you just have the base game, just look up the rules for the focused action. You can use the Eldritch tokens, I think they're called. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can you can use anything really, but yeah, yeah. So basically, for one action, it gives you a reroll at some point throughout the game. And as we get into tests in a minute, you'll see why that's so important. So basically, after you take two actions and they both have to be different, then you go to the encounter phase where. If there are any monsters on the space you're on, you have to fight those, all of them, on the space. If you defeat every single monster that's on the space, then you can do an action there as well. Or if there are no monsters on the space, which usually there's a location action, which is tied into the location that you're at. Or you're going to do a token action, which could be going through a gate and trying to close that or gain these clue tokens or do the expedition or face a rumor, which are some of these mythos cards. So after you're done with the encounter phase, so everybody takes two actions, then everybody does an encounter phase, then you move on to the mythos phase, which is basically where the bad stuff happens. You flip over one of these mythos cards, and a lot of bad things happen, like more gates pop up, 
monsters come out of the gates, things like that. And then you start all over again. The game resolves mostly around passing these tests. And the way a test works is you have a skill in a certain attribute and you roll a number of dice equal to your skill and you're looking for fives or sixes. Typically you just need one success, so one five or six to pass the test, but sometimes you'll need more. And that is the gist of how you play Elder Char. That was pretty good. So uh, if you have not listened to our show before, welcome. And the way we do our discussion of the game is we're each going to go through five things we think are most important, most interesting, most mechanically significant or unique about the game. Uh, Sometimes they might be compliments, sometimes they might be critiques. And we're going to start with uh, number five, the thing we think is important but not as important as the other aspects, and work our way up to each of our number ones. And then we'll end with our general thoughts and suggestions for uh, whether you should get the game or not. So, uh, Chris, you're our guest. Why don't you hit us with your number five? My number five is the fact that you can actually kill monsters in Eldritch Horror. We're going to talk about it, and some of these are going to be comparisons to Arkham. Mm-hmm. Arkham is a much more brutal system than Eldritch is. Eldritch opens things up, it simplifies some things, streamlines some things, and makes certain certain things a little bit easier. One of those things is, is monster combat. That doesn't mean you want to just just go willy-nilly flying into combat against monsters in Eldritch, but at least the system is streamlined enough and you have a chance uh, that you could do persistent damage to that monster as well. So the difference in in the system between that and Arkham is generally unless you're a a monster hunter in Arkham, you're going to get your butt handed to you. In Eldritch, you do have at least a shot. And you can also do sneaks, sneak rolls and things like that. And, of course, the monsters do have persistent damage in the monster system they don't wander around as much as in Arkham, unless they happen to have the special ability of like moving around. So once a monster's in a location, you can pretty much plan on it being there and try to deal with it by either avoiding it or, or tackling it to, uh, to try to defeat it so other people can come in, especially if it's sitting on top of a gate. Well, and that's what I was going to say. That's where they always plant themselves, right? They're always planted on top of the gate or where you want to do expeditions. <laughs> right. Even though they don't move around, they certainly get in your way as you uh, want to do stuff in the game. Yeah, totally. And it's uh, I think that the monsters seem to make a little bit more sense in Eldritch than they do Arkham. They're very, very random in Arkham. Things seem to happen a little bit more thematically uh, in Eldritch. So that's not to say that it doesn't have randomness to it, but uh, you don't, I think it's, it's a little easier to, to plan ahead with the monsters in Eldritch Horror, again, because they're not quite as mobile, but they will definitely get in your way. And also a big difference is the claustrophobia of Arkham Horror because the monsters actually impact your movement and make it tougher to get by them. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, you know, unless you need to get into that space, you can just gallivant right past them and ride the train and, you know, wave at the night gaunt as you pass them. <laughs> right. All right, Peter, how about your number five? All right, so my number five is growing tension. And especially with, I play with a variant on the game also. So not only do I use the focus action as one of the variants I play with, but I also play with a variant called the stage deck. So the way that works is the mythos cards come in easy, medium, and hard. The way the staging the deck works is you play with all easy cards first, and then you play with all middle ones in the middle stage two of the game, and then you play with all the hard ones at the end. So there's definitely a feeling of progression of difficulty as you're playing through it. Now, this can be a lot of fiddly work putting together this Mythos deck. So there's actually an app I use that I'll put a link to in the show notes that makes it so much easier. And all it does is replace the Mythos deck, basically. You tell them what sets you have, and you tell them how you want to set up the Mythos deck, and it'll do it for you. That sounds like a godsend, because one of the only main big drawbacks to Eldritch Horror is the setup. And the Mythos deck setup is crazy. 
Yeah, it's definitely the most annoying. I use that app too, and it, it's wonderful. It really simplifies uh, the setup quite a bit. Awesome. All right, so my number five is uh, – it's actually an interesting one because when we were designing Salvation Road in its very early stages, we came up with basically the exact same mechanic and were really proud of it and didn't think we had seen it in a game before. But then Eldritch came out before Salvation Road came out and had basically the same mechanic. And I was like, well, it is a good idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so that's the use of double-sided cards for uh, the spells and especially for the conditions. So you'll get these conditions on you like you'll be in debt or you'll have a back injury or you'll be uh, poisoned if you have the first expansion. And you have a way to get rid of that, but you can also push your luck and just kind of leave it on you. Like maybe you don't want to pay off your debts. You just want to leave them there. And the fun thing is that even though you might have 10 copies of the debt card, each of those cards has a unique effect on the back that you're not allowed to look at until it uh, is forced to resolve in the mythos phase. And then uh, you might find out that it was not that bad and some mobsters come to rough you up and you escape them easily. Or you might have the one that I always hate where uh, you're forced to get a dark pact and that might (laughs) eat you alive later on. Dark packs are not good. So I love this mechanic. You know, for Salvation Row, we used it for the wounds, but it works amazingly here. Just kind of the push your luck uh, tension of looking at these horrible things on your character and not being sure how much you actually have to worry about them yet and deciding, should I spend my precious actions to take care of them or not? So I like uh, definitely big pro, the tension that the double-sided spells and conditions add to the game. And this was kind of a honorable mention for me. I actually put easy to play on there, and then I went specifically into these card effects. The nice part is, unlike a lot of games like this, where you've got these dead effects, and you've got these broken leg effects, and these back, you know, broken back effects, or whatever else, and you have to look up what the special rules mean, in Eldritch, you really don't have to do that. Because you have that card in front mm-hmm. of you, and it tells you when you have to flip it, and you flip it, and you basically do what it says on the back. So even though there's a lot going on in this game and a lot of story that comes out, because of this flipping the card system, it really makes it very easy to learn and easy to play because you're not looking up a ton of effects all the time. Yeah, I agree, and I love the feeling. Of like when you when you have a detriment to you, or you're in debt, or you know, you're wounded, or anything like that, you have that kind of uh, looming over you through the game, and you're like, when's that going to trigger? Is it going to be bad? And then if you've played the game several times, you'll be like, oh, I hope I don't have that one. You know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Chris, what's your number four? My number four, I like the skill upgrade system. It's easy to understand. It allows you to specialize or actually buff your character in a specific area they might be weak in to help you with skill tests later. And the fact that you can actually depend on going to certain locations in the game to specifically buff your character now you have an encounter in a city that is going to give you a chance that you might be able to buff a certain skill it's not always guaranteed but at least you can take the chance to go to that place and say like okay well i'm going to spend a couple rounds getting my character you know uh, increase my character's perception or something like one of the skills that's on the card and that actually helps you to do better in the game so i like that system it's very easy to understand very easy to implement and uh, it's a great way to customize uh, your your uh, your character as you go through the game. Yeah, and that ties right into my number four, which I put sense of character progression. And I, I not only talk about the skills here, but also gaining items, gaining spells, gaining artifacts. This isn't a dungeon crawl per se, but some of these games end dungeon crawls. You'll go in and you'll barely get better from the beginning to the end. This is not that game. You know, you're playing in two hours and you really feel a shift in your character. You're getting better every time you get new items, every time you get new skills, especially if you get those artifacts. Some of them are really powerful and make you a lot better. So 
your character, even though they have some innate abilities at the beginning of the game, they really feel very different from where they did at the beginning by the end of the game, at least hopefully. Well, it's interesting. Mine, uh, I guess, connects more to what you were saying, Chris. Uh, and specifically, I'm going to focus on the locations. I love that, as you said, the locations have specific rewards. You can very frequently expect to have a chance to get at them. So it both boosts the thematic element of the game. Like, I know that Arkham is full of magic, so I kind of feel like that place has its own personality. And also mechanically gives me more agency as a player to go to the places I need to to buff my character in the way I want. Mm-hmm. And I'll kind of add on to that. This one you have to look a bit more. It's in the uh, the rules reference and not uh, said anywhere else. I kind of wish they had put it in a more prominent place. But they also made sure to make certain types of actions and encounters use certain stats more frequently. So your characters are naturally inclined towards certain things. So if you're really good at lore, then you should be the one going into gates more frequently. Right. If you're really good at observation, you should be the one doing the research encounters on the clues more frequently. And I love that, that that I can feel like while I can still be a generalist and try to go do anything... If I sort of play my role and play to my character's strengths, the game has been designed in such a way to reward me for that and not just have the encounters be a total random mishmash of any kind of stat for any kind of encounter. You know, I wish I had read that rules reference sheet before I made my top five list. I wouldn't have made mine. uh, (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I didn't know that, though. I didn't realize that they specifically went for certain skills. I guess I figured it out through gameplay, but gosh, I would have died a lot less early on had I... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, so I, I think it's kind of, uh, it is emergent gameplay that happens, actually, because a lot of people aren't really going to see that, and they might miss that, and that's okay, because you learn through trial and error, and then it's more like, I hate to say, you use the word real life, because we're talking about both a board game and something that exists in the Lovecraftian mythos, <laughs> but, you know, you walk into a situation, and you're like, you might be adept at that situation, or you might not. It's uh, it's very Lovecraftian to not know, to be honest with you, because Absolutely. you just... This game leans more toward the pulp hero side of things than it does the existential dread portion of Lovecraft. Yes, yes. Whereas, in my opinion, it's a pretty even balance in Arkham Horror, but it's a little bit more on that dread uh, scale. Things are heady in Arkham Horror. You're you're probably going to die or go insane. But, you know, it doesn't mean that Eldritch Heart is is easy. It's just uh, a little lighter in that type of, that touch. Yeah, I mean, I feel a bit more like Indiana Jones in Arkham Horror. I mean, sorry, in Eldritch Horror. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. In that, uh, I mean, you know, I still die in that game sometimes, but definitely you're going to be kicking butt and taking names a lot more successfully. Yeah. Well, and speaking about dying, we didn't really talk about that, but if your character does die, you're not out of the game. You just grab another character from the box and all the equipment your first character had acquired, you can actually go over and have an encounter with your either your dead body self <laughs> or, <laughs> or your corpse and try to get that equipment from it. <laughs> yeah. And man, I, I love those. Like, there, there are still a few of them I haven't seen, even after all the times I've played the game. And I love when I get a new one because they're, they're really pretty well written and often kind of eerie encounters with, you know, your former selves. So I, I really enjoy that mechanic as a whole. Yeah, I do too. All right, Chris, what's your number three? My number three is sort of pedestrian, but it's a mechanical thing. So the movement system, using the rail and water tickets. The movement system is very streamlined in that the action that you can, one of the actions you can take on your turn is move. But you that's all you can do. You can move once, and that's to, you know, from a city to a city. But with the rail and ticket system, you can get a boost to that move. So you can move, both move and then spend a ticket to take uh, a water route or a, a train route. 
uh, to, to boost your movement during the turn. It's a simple little thing to add, but it also gives you a decision state in the game. Whereas like you're, you're thinking, well, what am I going to do my turn? I'm going to plan ahead and you can hold up to two tickets. I'm going to plan ahead and I'm going to get a ticket. I'm looking over here and I'm trying to get like into the middle of like Transylvania or whatever. Like there's a lot of rail lines over there. So I'm going to take a rail ticket and hopefully that can help me to boost my movement as I move along. Again, it's a simple thing, but I think it actually adds an elegance to the game. And I'm not sure, I'd have to double check, I'm not sure if they introduced this system in Eldritch first or the reprint of Fury Dracula first. Because they both have that system. And it's been used also in another Fantasy Flight game since then as well. But anyway, I like it. Fury of Dracula, if I remember correctly, you could do rail movement, but then the train might not be there. You'd roll the train die. But I don't think you would spend an action like getting ready to go on the train. I think you would just spend your move doing that. So I think it was new to Eldritch from what I remember. I, I think I believe I believe that's correct. But I like the system. And also, you know, what's more fun? You got these little tickets you get. And you're like... <laughs> They're awesome. Well, yeah, and also because uh, because you have to sit on a space to have your encounter, it definitely, as you said, adds some tactical landscape to the game because, you know, rather than having to move twice, if you could move twice and be on a new space, you can choose to get a ticket, have the encounter on the place you're currently at, mm-hmm. and then move more quickly to another space to have a new encounter instead of sort of uh, being forced to be stuck in the middle with nothing going on. Right. All right, uh, Peter, you're number three. So my number three, I'm actually calling this 2A because I could not figure <laughs> for the life of me which one was two and which one was three. So because I love this mechanic, and I was actually talking about it with TC the other day, and it's the unique turn sequence. So I love how the turn sequence is integrated. Every player does two actions, so they're all involved. And then every player does an encounter. Because this encounter phase is longer, it takes a little bit more. That's where a lot of the story comes out. You're reading a lot about where you are and where you're going. And I just love how they integrate this turn structure in a way that is different than anything I've seen before in other games. Now let me ask you a question really quickly, the way that you, you play the game. Do you read your own encounters, or do you have peop- other people read the encounters to you? Typically, we read our own. I almost always, unless I'm playing with uh, my son, and he can't read well enough yet, mm-hmm. we almost always will have the other player read your encounter, and not even like tell you what the possible uh, results right. are if you have a choice. Yeah, that's the way I, I, I mean, you can do it both ways. It's quicker for you to read your own encounter, but sure. it's more thematic and story driven for to have somebody read to you because you're going to have probably a skill check or something's going to happen. And then they say, okay, uh, do a lore check. And you're like, oh, why? Because uh, you don't see what the results are on that card. And so you roll, right. you make the check. And if you do make the check, they tell you the outcome. So it's a little bit, you know, it's it, it boosts the story that way. But the other way, especially for playing solo, obviously you got to read your own one. Uh, it's faster. That makes a lot of sense. I typically do it where we read our own because it is a little bit faster, but you're right. It would make more sense for somebody else to read it. And I'll also be honest, depends on how much I've been drinking that night. Mike knows. (laughs) That's absolutely true. (laughs) Once I've drank a certain amount, I'm done reading for the night, like (laughs) for everybody's benefit. (laughs) So my number three is one that we haven't mentioned yet. But I adore how different each of the great old ones feels and how much they've added. Because I, I don't remember... I, I haven't played Arkham in a few years, so maybe I'm forgetting some stuff. 
but I don't remember this much differentiation between the Great Old Ones and Arkham like we have in Eldritch. Yeah, see, my, you picked my number one. That's my number one thing. Uh, well, well, uh, do, do you want me to hold off on speaking about it? So you no, can... we can talk about it now. We can revisit okay. it for a second for the number one, but I, I can actually answer that question about the Arkham Horror uh, Great Old Ones. Well, here, I'll, I'll leave that to when, when you get to it. Just sure. real quick. So you get your unique research cards to get clues on the board, which will give you, like, encounters themed along with with the Great Old Ones theme. You'll get these uh, unique mysteries that have you sometimes, like, fighting giant children of the Great Old One and other cool stuff like that. And many of the Great Old Ones, uh, both in the core game and the expansions, have their own special encounter decks. So uh, Cthulhu, you go to underwater areas since he's all in Sunken Relia. And, yeah, it's just really cool. I, I love how, even though I'm playing with the same mechanics, basically the same rules, not that many, like, fiddly effects to have to remember, I still feel like I'm playing a very different game just by switching the great old one. And it also gives the expansions great value, because even if you don't love everything in there, as long as you get, like, one or two or three new great old ones, it's really going to change your game up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I, and, I, again, I'll revisit some of this when we get to my number one. But, spoilers, it's my number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get to that, let's hear your number two, Chris. My number two was something that was mentioned uh, a little bit a while, uh, ago, but I like the scope of the game and the story that unfolds for it. Uh, I will say that, okay, and again, this is a comparison with Arkham Horror, and it's just hard not to do that. Arkham Horror has a more intimate story that develops mm-hmm. because it's all taking place in Arkham. Uh, well, and sometimes in the other worlds and things like that. But uh, you, your story is much more kind of intimate because it involves the people that are in the place. The The scope of Eldritch is worldwide. So you're going to have different uh, encounters in Istanbul versus like back in Arkham in the U.S. or something like that. So the scope feels, again, like it, it, it ratchets it up quite a bit because you feel like you're trying to defend the whole world and not just Arkham. I like the scope because of the world worldly operations. Again, the story isn't quite as intimate or uh, I guess the role-playing aspect of it isn't quite as robust as Arkham Horror, but it feels more like you're trying to save the entire world rather than just a town. Well, yeah, and you're trying to stop an ancient one from rising. Yeah. This is this really does have world implications here. So it, Absolutely. it really is kind of a neat scale. I mean, it did in Arkham, too, but I guess nobody cared enough to send anybody to New England. <laughs> right, yeah. In Arkham, you're like, well, why? you ask yourself, and it's it's not even, you can't even debate it, but it's in, you're in Arkham Horror, you're like, why does everything just happen in Arkham? <laughs> right. <laughs> this town is cursed, and it Wait, is. Hey, man, you, you get the first expansion, they add Dunwich in there, too, and then you it's can get Innsmouth. So at least, you know, you get like a 20-mile radius. <laughs> You're doing all of the Northeast at one point. That's yeah, about that's it. Right. Okay, Peter, what's your number two? All right. So we've been glowing a lot about the game, but I do have a little bit of a negative at my number two, which is everything is roll to resolve. Now, there are some pros to roll to resolve as well, obviously. A very quick resolution system. You know, you have some very dramatic moments where you have those stand-up dice rolls. So those are all great. But you are rolling dice a lot. And if there are people out there that just don't want to roll a lot of dice, they are not probably going to enjoy playing this game because at some point you're just rolling handfuls of dice, especially as you start getting more equipment and you level up your skills. There's a lot of rolling. Now, to me, that's a little bit of a positive because the more times you roll dice, the more likely you are to get a standard deviation. But there are also times where you're rolling six dice and you just fail to get successes. 
And before that focus action came into the game, again, where you can just take an action to get a focus token, which will let you re-roll one of your dice, it was very hard to get re-rolls. The only way in the base game to get re-rolls is those clue tokens, and a lot of times you need those to win the game. So they're not really something you're going to sacrifice a lot of times unless somehow you have a way of just generating a lot of them. And and that was one of my runner-up comments that didn't make my top five, but I appreciated the willingness of the designers to revisit the design because when it first came out, I bought it, you know, obviously just as soon as it came out, and you were reticent to use clue tokens because you didn't know when you were going to see more of them. And right. you you really, really needed them. And so when Mountains of Madness came out and it had the focus design in it, I was like, yes, they finally addressed yeah. it. They probably saw that people were never using clue tokens. And we're getting frustrated because they couldn't get rerolls, and the fo- the the focus mechanic actually solved a lot of that. So I, I do commend the designers for going back and saying, okay, we're going to add this new system into it. It makes the game slightly easier, but it doesn't break down the the tension and the the challenge of the game itself. Oh no, it's still pretty hard. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's going to go a bit into my number two, which is uh, also a negative, even though uh, I've been mostly positive the whole time about the game. And this is one that's going to kind of vary by your your play experience and vary by the group you're with. I've played the game probably 20-plus times now. And something that's come out more in my more recent plays is that I sometimes feel like I don't have enough to do and don't have enough control over what I'm doing during the action phase. I mean, clearly I can choose what to do. I can choose to, like, try to get items. But a lot of the actions don't excite that much, like moving one space, uh resting for one sanity and one health, all that kind of stuff. And it often feels like the real meat of the game is in the encounter phase, which is a little odd, especially if you're not playing with a group that wants to read the encounters out loud and kind of get into that theme and that role-playing element. I, I sort of feel like a passive observer in a lot of those. Like, the, the game is going to tell me what I need to roll, the game is going to tell me what I need to do, and... With that being sort of the more important and more interesting part of the game, I sometimes feel like I do lack a little bit of agency and determination in what my fate is. Now, usually that's fine for me. This is a sort of more of a con for potential players. Because, again, I really love the theme. I like reading the encounters out loud. I'm into what happens. But if you're playing with a group that's like trying to play the game as a tactical game and a strategy game and just trying to win... I think that it can feel a little bit out of your control in a way that might be uh, not satisfying for some players. Yeah. And it's funny. I was actually thinking through this the other day, and I didn't put it down anywhere. But for me, that action phase is actually kind of like more of a puzzly phase. I know you said it felt a little bit out of your control, but I feel like a lot of times, especially once the game gets going and things start ratcheting up, that's where you're making your decisions on what's going to happen during that next phase, during that encounter phase. So it's like, okay, I know I'm low on health. So maybe it's not the most interesting action in the world to rest, but it is still something you have to figure out. It's like the tactical part of the game for me is that action phase. Okay, I got to figure out where I need to be and how much health I need to have and how to get there. And so for me, it feels more like a game like Spirit Island where I'm trying to solve a little puzzle during that phase. Okay, maybe I can't get there this turn, but what do I have to do to figure out how to get there in the next two or three turns so I can get that clue token or so I can take care of that gate or whatever it is that I'm working towards? I think that one of the things that I've noticed with feedback from not necessarily the the hardcore gamers that get into Eldritch and Arkham are not really going to notice it as much, but the more casual gamers that just play it occasionally 
will feel a little bit out of phase. So what I mean by that, yeah, it's like you know, let's say that you're really good at you know uh, closing gates, like you're high in lore, but your character is like just out of position where the gates are popping up. So now you're like, well, I want to be useful, but now I got to try to get halfway across the board, and that's going to take me a while. And you know, how do I do that? So that part I think can be frustrating sometimes to more casual gamers for it. Yeah, absolutely. So again, just kind of a warning if you know what your game group is like, just something to consider. And I guess that'll kind of go into my final thoughts at the end. All right. um, I know we're all waiting, Chris. We have no idea. (laughs) What is your number one point for Eldritar? Yeah, let's revisit that. It is the thematics behind the ancient ones, the great old ones. Uh, You know, for instance, you're going to face a lot of magic when you go up against Yogg-Sothoth, so you better possibly get somebody who's good at casting some spells you know uh or facing you know lore checks um you know that when you're playing with shub nigaroth you're going to have a lot of monsters coming out because she's the mother of monsters you know so and and, and also the hardest in my opinion ancient oh, one gosh, in the main she, box she destroys me yeah like absolutely she's the worst, i think it's just crazy it's fun but <laughs> she's insane but yeah, I mean, it's a, every single one of the decks has been because they have such uh, they have their own special cards that are mixed into the game. They have their own mysteries that you're trying to solve. They're going to feel very different. And to answer your question, when you brought it up about uh, Arkham Horror, it, they didn't really do that as much. Now the the sheet, the the goo sheet, the great old one sheet that you played with would have a lot of flavor on it and different effects that would happen during the game, but it didn't have any specific, like, you know, cards that came out to that furthered the story. They did, however, start introducing more of that with the Black Go to the Woods expansion, mm. which in my opinion was the best small box expansion they put out for the game. And I call it in the, the golden years of, of Arkham Horror. They're still <laughs> releasing some for Arkham Horror, but that was when it was the only you know show on the block. Sure. Sure. But but Black Go to the Woods, I think, added in a lot of specific story that centered around uh, Shub and and the uh, the monsters that kept popping up and the stories that would happen in the woods section. You know, that was when they started really grasping more of the story aspects and and making it lean toward uh, one way or the other. So I thought that was that was cool, and it, I think it was a progression that got them to how they came up with the system for Elder Chara and the Ancient Ones. So I think that's that's my favorite, because it, it just feels, every game feels differently when you play with those Ancient Ones now, and they feel geared toward the way the Ancient Ones actually you know are, and their mythos. Uh, good point. Yeah. So my number one was kind of touched on by you guys with your ones and twos, and that's the narrative elements of the game. I am not one that typically reads the story on cards. I'm like, okay, what kind of test do I have to do and what do I have to do? But the story is so rich in this. And it's not overly long. It's not like you're sitting there reading three paragraphs out. You know, it's typically two or three sentences of flavor text. And then there's a bunch after your skill test, whether you pass or fail. But the story itself is pretty quick to read. But it's very thematic. And they do tie every story into your location. So if you're in, you know, Arkham, for example you're doing an encounter that would happen at Arkham. And so I like how they made every location feel unique and special and feel like it kind of should. And then, like you were saying, with the Ancient Ones also, they all have their own special cards too. So when you're getting even clue tokens, you have to go to places and do things to get the clue tokens. The way you get those are all tied into the Ancient One you're fighting against. And I think that's kind of neat. So even though all the mysteries are a lot of times gather clues and then go somewhere and do something, the way you gather those clues are very different based on the old one you're fighting as well. So the story elements of the game are just great in this one you know if you're thinking about whether you'd like it or not 
I think you should try it out just to get those story elements. All right, Mike, what do you think? So I sort of feel bad about my number one because <laughs> it's a negative, but again, I don't want people to think I'm negative about this game. So let me give a little bit of context. I played this game a lot solo, adored it. I played it a lot with gamers, have adored it. But for whatever reason, just because of my schedule and everything, the last probably five or six times I've played it have either been with my five-year-old, who requests it constantly, God knows why, <laughs> you know, with, it's not necessarily the most appropriate content, I'll have to change what I'm reading on the encounter cards pretty frequently, <laughs> and my wife, who's a more casual gamer, like those are the two people who have requested it most frequently recently. And uh, the one thing that's kind of stood out in those plays that has annoyed me, and I don't want to be a whiner, this is a fantastic game, but I really get bogged down in fiddliness during the mythos phase. And the thing it absolutely like grinds the game to a halt for me, and again, I'm the only one doing any of this stuff because uh, I don't really have help from my five-year-old. The stuff that grinds the game to a halt for me are the, uh, the icons on the top of each mythos card. So for those who haven't played, you might spawn a gate and place a monster on it. You might uh, spawn some new clues based on the number of players in the game. And the one that just <laughs> makes makes the game take like 10 minutes longer every turn it happens, the reckoning effects. Oh, reckonings, yeah. Because I always forget like which monsters have the reckoning effects. And oh, well, you know, and, and if you have the monsters with their art, their thematic evocative art face up, you don't know what the heck the reckoning effect is. You got to flip it over. And then, you know, you might have, like, I, I love the condition cards. That was that was on my list earlier. But you might have three conditions on your player, and some of them will resolve, and some of them have a test to prevent them from resolving. You might have some positive conditions on you. You got the blessing that you never want to end, so you might accidentally forget to roll for it during the reckoning phase. Yeah, so, again, I, I'm not sure if this is fair to have it as my number one, but it is the thing that kind of, like, stuck in my mind after my most recent plays. I was just like, man, this mythos phase, it's the only part where we're not really doing anything, where we're not really making any choices, and it just drags a bit more than I would like. The game is still much faster and much more efficient than Arkham Horror ever was, but uh, yeah, for such a streamlined, smooth game, I do feel like that phase, especially with the reckoning effects, often breaks the smooth feeling. I would agree with what you said. It does require some patience on the fiddliness portion of it, especially the reckonings. Yeah, when you yeah. get a lot of a lot of monsters out that have reckonings, and a lot of people have conditions and things that are tripping, you've got to just stop and like resolve all those. And it usually takes about at least five minutes to do all that. So, yeah, I see your point. Well, and it ramps up with the game too. In the first round, there's not a whole lot to do with yeah. reckoning typically. Sure, sure. But as the game goes along, and more and more monsters come out, the more you have to deal with, the longer it takes for sure. Yeah, which does, on occasion, has somewhat diminished the tension for me, because I'm kind of taken out of the theme of those encounters and the great old one possibly awakening with, like, having to kind of deal with the, the upkeep of the game. Don't want to be too down on the game, but just... Uh... And along those same lines, there are some games that you'll play of it where the Mythos deck is going to be more annoying than others. Like, yes. You might have some where all of a sudden you, you're getting really close to solving a mystery and, and uh, something pops out of the mythos deck that goes, well, if you don't take care of this in four turns, you all die. And you're like, <laughs> yep. and you're like oh, crap. So, yeah, that'll happen sometimes. Well, and then there's that infamous, I guess there's uh, one generic card and one Azathoth card that just completely erases a mystery from the game. Yes. We, we, we house-ruled those out almost immediately. <laughs> <laughs> the second we saw them, we were like, no, we're not we're not increasing this playtime by an hour yeah, <laughs> because of this one it, card. It, it's rude. Those are rude cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. 
All right, Chris. Well, why don't we get into your final thoughts? I think we know them, but just to change it up a little bit, why don't you also let us know what expansions you've played and kind of your thoughts on those as well? Are they necessary? Sure. My overall thoughts is this game rocks. I love it. It's uh, it's one that I have soloed several times, but also have introduced a lot of different people to. I think the last expansion that I, I'm, hmm, I'm thinking, I haven't honestly, which is kind of a shame. I haven't played it in about a year, but I do. I've gotten the recent expansions, like uh, let's see, there's the um, Dreamlands mm-hmm. uh, that I still need to get on the table for it. But I've defeated the monsters and encounters in Mountains of Madness and Beneath the Pyramids, and Forsaken Lore. And there's a couple other small box ones in there that I have that I still need to get out to get it on the table. I think Mountains of Madness... Mountains of Madness is my personal favorite Lovecraft story. But I will say, the only drawback for that expansion is that there's a whole separate board right. that is, is set up down in Antarctica. And of course it's cool because it emulates the story. But if it's your job to go down there to Antarctica and take care of this stuff, that's all you're going to do the whole game. Yep. <laughs> And it's cool because it's got a lot of really cool thematics to it, but basically, if you're going to play the game, one person has to go down to Antarctica and take care of stuff, possibly two, but at least one person, and then once you're there, you're there. And, and it, to be honest with you, it, it revolves revolves back to like Arkham Horror with the Kingsport Horror expansion. I really like that expansion, but again, when you're trying to deal with the rifts that open in Kingsport, if you're going to Kingsport, that's all you're going to be doing. You're going yeah, to be going to Kingsport. there and stop those monsters every exactly. day. Exactly. Right, exactly. So... Uh, I, I like the Mountains of Madness expansion primarily because it introduced the focus mechanic, but it, the thematics were fun, and uh, it introduces a you know a couple of new monsters and things that you can play with. I think the Beneath the Pyramids expansion was actually pretty excellent because uh, you can access the pyramids, but of course going to, to Egypt, and it's another board that's up there, and, and one of the main big bads, and that is Nefron Ka. The flavor for that one is really, really good. It You're not necessarily going to be locked into that extra board like you would in the Antarctica portion of Mountains of Madness. I like all the expansions that I've played so far. Uh, like I said, I've got, I've got a couple of the small box expansions that I need to add in and, and try out. But I think they've all been pretty solid. I don't know that you need expansions. If you want to try Eldritch Horror, there's plenty in the box. Because literally you're going to be trying to... Def- if you play Eldritch Horror until you beat all of the Ancient Ones in Eldritch Horror box. And I guarantee you, you won't need an expansion for a long time. Mm-hmm. Especially if trying to defeat Shub. <laughs> so, yeah. Alright, well I'll go next. I really have enjoyed the game a lot myself. It had been a while since I had played it, but I got it back on the table just for the review so I could kind of remind myself of what the actions were like and what it felt like. And I started playing it more because I wanted to play it than to get ready for the review. So that said something good for me. And like I said, I'm not typically a read the story elements out loud kind of person, but I really have enjoyed the story elements in Elder Char and kind of getting into the world and getting into the um, the little bit of mythos that they add in as flavor tech. So for me, it has been really neat to get back into. Certainly there's some problems. I, I would love more mitigation. I think the focus action adds some of that. There are still some times where it just doesn't go your way. And to some degree, and I talked about this in Alien Encounters as well. To some degree, that adds to the tension, and that's a good thing, but it still doesn't stop you from being frustrated at the time when it happens to you, especially when you're, like, one turn away from winning or losing, and that that bad roll happens <laughs> then. It definitely can be frustrated. As far as expansions, the only one I've ever played with is Forsaken Lore. Certainly, we played with the focus action from Mountains of Madness, and I wouldn't play without that. 
But I would say the, the base box is really good and there is a lot of content. But I feel like once you play three or four games, you start seeing the same spell cards, the same conditions over and over. Forsaken Lore is a very small expansion. It's pretty inexpensive, I think. And it like doubles the amount of content in each of those decks. Mm-hmm. So I would say pretty early on, it doesn't really add too much to the complexity, if at all. There's certainly no extra boards. There's a couple of extra great old ones to fight against and some maybe even some extra characters. But I really like how it expands the amount of content you already have in the game without expanding complexity. And those are my favorite kind of expansions. So I would definitely recommend Forsaken Lore. Pretty quickly, if you played Elder Tor once or twice, you know you like it. I would add Forsaken Lore as my first expansion pretty quickly. Yeah, so for me, I'll echo everyone else. I think this is a great game. Really well designed. Although I was a big Arkham Horror fan for years and years, I do think Eldritch mostly replaced it for me mainly because of the efficiency of the design, how much quicker I could get a game in, how much more easily I could teach it to uh, casual gamers and such. I will say, as a big Lovecraft fan, that this is one of the least Lovecrafty <laughs> games for me. And, and Chris, you, you talked about this earlier. Lovecraft is, and specifically the Lovecraft stories, again, not getting into Derelith or anyone else who kind of expanded on them, but just in the original Lovecraft stories... There is almost no example of anyone fighting anything. It's all like mounting fear, running away, going insane. And I do think that Arkham LCG, especially in the latest cycle, which is all about madness and kind of confusion and illusion and reality. I think uh, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition with the app. I think the original Arkham Horror. I think all of those do the fear and dread and insanity better. So if you're, like, specifically here for the HP Lovecraft experience, I think Eldritch Horror is actually the weakest of the group. But in terms of gameplay and feeling like a hero and having an awesome adventure, I think it's fabulous, and I think anyone should check it out. And I'll echo what Peter said. Um, I've only pretty much only played with that first expansion that just doubles the decks. And that really is a reactionary thing to Arkham Horror, because adding Dunwich and adding Innsmouth, I, I just I grew to hate sideboards with a passion. <laughs> like, I felt like the games, and I think this applies to Eldritch too, Chris, it sounds like you're agreeing here. I think the games are best balanced for, like, the original board in terms of players actually being able to cooperate and interact mm-hmm. with each other. And I think the second you start adding sideboards in, you just disperse the group too much. And, you know, that can be a good experience. But if I'm playing a co-op, I want to cooperate. I don't want to just be doing my job halfway around the world and never see you or talk to you at all. Yeah, I think that the sideboards, I I don't, yeah, I played Beneath the Pyramids with Daryl. And it, it didn't, it wasn't too obtrusive as far as like separating us when we played with the characters. But I, I've only played Mountains of Madness solo. And by doing that, of course, you're getting to have, and I played with, I think, three characters, so I was uh, running three characters at once. And so you're, you're having the experience of two of them going throughout the world, and then you're also having the experience of being in Antarctica, and that's fun. But I could definitely see if you're playing with a group, that poor person who has to stick the whole game down <laughs> in Antarctica, they better really like Antarctica. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it sounds like a... Big recommends from all three of us. So if you've not gotten a chance to play this and the the Cthulhu mythos interests you at all, go check out Eldritch Horror. And I will say real quick also, check out the FAQ before you do play, especially because some of the player counts, they edited how you add gates and add monsters to the game with different player counts. And I really think they've done that, obviously, to balance the game better. 
So definitely check out the FAQ. The last page just has updated player count cards, like how you increase attention for player counts. Good call. All right, so uh, our design discussion today, where we talk about just kind of suggestions for people designing games and experiences with uh, games designed in a certain way, is going to be focusing on uh, what makes a good game in the Cthulhu mythos. And Chris, you obviously have a good amount of experience here, more than either of us, and we've all played several games, at least in the Fantasy Flight version of the Mythos, and in some cases in other ones. So, uh, yeah, let's just dig in for a little bit. What do you think makes a good H.P. Lovecraft kind of Cthulhu game? What are some of the the pitfalls people can fall into? What are the best mechanics? All that kind of stuff. Sure. Step one, find Richard Launius. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that is the the key to making a good lovecraft game is making a game with richard launius he co-designed fate of the elder gods with you all right he did yes okay that's uh, awesome. he and yeah. he and daryl daryl had the idea for fate at unpub was it five i think it was five and we were sitting around in the hotel room late at night with Richard and just talking about the idea behind it. And so he and uh, Daryl and, and Richard started fleshing out the, the game. And then I said, well, obviously I want to not only publish this, but to help develop it and work on it and everything like that. So we just started getting involved and then they got it to a certain place. And then I took a spring, a full spring break, spent a whole week at Daryl's, just basically rounding out the game and doing, adding my touch of, of the knowledge that I know about the mythos and adding more story and flavor to it. And it just uh, snowballed from there. But yeah, where well, I mean, just designing stuff with Richard's amazing. Anyway, he's just, he's so his zeal for life and games is contagious and he's so fun to play with. And, and he's such a great person to collaborate with as far as design is concerned. And he's, his knowledge of the mythos is just insane. I mean, I consider mine pretty high, but it's probably high because, you know, I have played Arkham and grew up in that uh, same, you know, kind of uh, being surrounded by the theme. So, so I would say probably I was half joking about Richard, but I think the most important thing that makes a good Cthulhu game is actually understanding the mythos Mm -hmm. like having a knowledge of the mythos if you want to design something in that world you need to research it and and know it and and like understand the the differences uh in the mythos and the in the personalities of the great old ones and the types of things that are going to happen around the cults you know it's just you need to have that because people who are looking for a game that's set in the cthulhu mythos is going to want to have that rich theme and rich story behind it that's a great point, and and quick shout out from our side. We also designed a game with Richard, and yeah, he's he's just fabulous to work with. Really great guy. But if you can't find Richard Lonnie, <laughs> <laughs> you're done. I mean, that's it. Don't, don't even that's try. It. That's right. <laughs> so me being the one who knows least about the HP Lovecraft universe, I kind of wanted to talk about just what I've seen from the outsider's perspective. So there does seem to be a couple different ways to go at it, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, but it does seem like there is the Eldritch Horror Way, which is more of a pulp adventure, running around, running and gunning, shooting down monsters. I feel like Mansions of Madness has that a little bit too, where you're fighting off all these monsters, you're very attack-oriented. And then you have the RPG, which is the exact opposite of that. If you get sneezed on in that game, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or go insane. And then lately it feels like there's almost a third subcategory where it's coming at it from the cultist side, you know, with obviously Fate of the Elder Gods where you're trying to summon your Elder God, or Cthulhu Wars where you're playing these ancient great old ones and you're fighting against each other. So that seems like a, a new trend as far as uh, Cthulhu-type games lately. Yeah, I agree. And 
it's been interesting. There, you know, there's a little bit of a, I guess, a weariness because Cthulhu has been visited so much. But at the same yeah. time, there's still a lot of fans out there that that love playing in this world more. And that's what's been fun about working on Fate of the Elder Gods was doing it from that perspective of the cultists. And that way, you can put like really mean things in the game, but nobody really gets upset because you're like, I'm a cultist. What do you expect? You know. <laughs> so that's been fun. Yeah, so for me, I'm going to make a request of all the game designers out there. And heck, maybe we'll design it at some point. But I do not think... Maybe this is just an impossible task. But I do not think any Cthulhu-themed game I have ever played has actually captured the mental dread and insanity of the mythos. And especially the original H.P. Lovecraft stories. And one of the experiences, and I think you know, video games and movies might lend themselves better to this anyway, but one of the experiences that stands out to me as what I would love to see in a Cthulhu board game, I don't know if you've ever played this, uh, Chris, are you familiar with an old Nintendo game called Eternal Darkness? I am, yes. Yeah, so I, I love the heck out of the game. Now, it's not officially like Cthulhu. I mean, it's clearly Cthulhu, but it's, I don't know. If, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. maybe they couldn't get the rights or something, so they don't have like the actual names in there. <laughs> yeah. But this game, it's trippy. Your characters become evil, some of them, in some cases. Um, you have these insanity effects. So, like, as your sanity goes down, like, you actually view the world differently and things happen that aren't real. And if there was some game that, you know, I'm sort of thinking of what mechanics those would even look like. But if there was some game that could do that in some way, like, actually have your sanity decrease. And it's not just a second health marker like it is for all these games, but it actually, like, affects the way you play the game. Mm-hmm. Man, that would be cool. I would love that as just, like, a challenge out there for all the game designers. Like, see if you can make that work. I think the closest I've seen is, again, uh, we're, we're about halfway through the, the second big box expansion campaign for Arkham Horror LCG. And that one is a little bit less combat-focused. It's kind of freaking me out sometimes. They have some really nice, like, creepy thematic things going on. And, you know, like, this is, I guess, the closest I've seen to a mechanic that affects the insanity thing. There are cards that, like, force you to not do stuff you would normally want to do, and you're not allowed to tell anybody about it. I guess Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition had that a little bit, too, where you have this insanity and, like, people don't know if they can trust you anymore or not. Mm Mm-hmm. So there have been attempts, but I haven't seen anything that's really been that home run that actually makes, you know, not not that it seems like a pleasant thing to go insane, but it'd be awesome to have that in a game anyway. <laughs> have you had a chance to play Mountains of Madness yet? No, I haven't. That's the, uh, it's it's like a party game, right? It's sort of, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a co-op trying to escape basically Mountains of Madness, but as the game progresses, uh, you're going to gain insanity. And the, basically what it does is you draw cards that are increasingly difficult that add quirks to you. Like you have oh, to, wow. Like you think you're freezing to death. So every time you're talking, you've got to be constantly rubbing your body. And that's distracting. That's only a level one. Then there's other ones where it's like you have to like get somebody to look you dead in the eyes so you can, before you can talk to them. So you're always trying to grab people and, and just like force them to look <laughs> at you. Uh, and then in, in all these madness effects only take place when you're doing the uh, talking phase, which basically is a timer and that's the only time you can talk to each other about what or not talk to each other but the the challenge so while you're doing the challenge and trying to get past whatever the uh the square you're on collectively by putting things in you have to do this madness the entire time which is getting in your way of trying of even communicating what you need to accomplish the mission itself it's a lot of fun but it does have that effect of like the escalating madness which becomes humorous but at the same time, it really does make you feel like you're going crazy because, you know, 
it's just oh uh, like we were played Josh Mills had one where he could only talk uh but when he ta- when he talked he had to hold the his tongue to the top of his mouth. Oh my gosh. So it was like he had peanut butter all in his mouth and you could barely understand what he was talking about. It's it's definitely worth playing. It's, no it's man, I'm, I'm the second we're done this podcast we're going to go check it out cuz I I had heard of it but the second, you know, I I guess this Clearly, this was an unfair characterization, but the second I heard it described as party game in the mythos, I was like, that sounds dumb. <laughs> yeah, man, that, that's that's exactly what I was looking for. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm going to check out should, how they did it. That's great. You should absolutely check it out. And it's it's a lot of fun. Cool. All right. Well, one of the things, again, looking from the outside a little bit that I've noticed in the mythos is you want a sense of growing dread. And that's one of the things I mentioned about Eldritch Horror. It, that tension does seem to grow as the game goes on and that feeling of helplessness and just tension in general like i really feel every co-op you certainly want a sense of tension but i feel like in these games you want it to be ramped up even more yeah i agree i mean in a co-op so okay it's a little bit different when we you know fate of the elder gods is is a competitive game sure so the tension exists there of the race to to summon your elder god first we accomplish the, the thematics and everything through building theme into the mythos and, and the curse cards and things like that. But with a co-op, you have to have that increasing dread and that sense that, are we really going to pull this off? Are we going to make it in order to really immerse somebody into the, the Lovecraftian mythos and make them feel good? They've got, if you don't do that, then you've basically failed if something's too easy or there's not the, the, the point where you go we're we're gonna die aren't we <laughs> <laughs> i think you've kind of failed at, at being able to design something in that mythos space yeah and i'll kind of build on that with the immersiveness idea i think with such a strong theme as this and such a, a horror and kind of psychological horror theme you need to carefully consider how you're going to present it and that's both narratively and aesthetically and in terms of the design of your game you know, so uh, with Fate, you've got that amazing board and uh, the spell cards and all that stuff. And with Arkham and Eldritch, you've got the these fun, I mean, first of all, great art and great like board design, but also these really evocative, crazy uh, narrative stories on the encounter cards. Whatever way you do it, whatever way you do to communicate that theme artistically, narratively, through flavor text, whatever, you know, the, the mythos is rich. Don't just... I would fault uh, Cthulhu Wars, apart from the amazing miniatures, which, let's be honest, are unbelievable. There, there's not much of the mythos there for me. It just feels like guys on a board fighting, you know, like you have some theme yeah. in the cards and the special abilities. But it is it is not the mythos to me in really any way. Like if I had some flavor text, if I had more of a narrative in that game, I think it would be a stronger uh, thematic experience for me. Yeah, I think the only thing that saves uh, Cthulhu Wars, as uh, far as the mythos is concerned, is how the different great old ones factions play. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it, I think it's a fun game. I oh, yeah. don't have room to own it <laughs> <laughs> no no well our, our friend jerry has it we just go to his house it's far too big <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's a great and fun and actually surprisingly easy game to play but you know if you if you want to if you like cthulhu and you like dudes on a map and and battling i mean this game's this it's bonkers it's how sure it is. Yeah. yeah yeah and i was actually going to bring that one up because it does evoke the theme for me just through the 
special actions, as you were saying, of the Great Old Ones. And it's funny, as I'm playing that and Eldritch Horror, I'm starting to learn things about the mythos, right? Like, I learned Cthulhu is water-based, you know, both in that game and in Eldritch Horror when I fought him the other day. I was like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the other thing is there is a lot of story, as Chris was talking about earlier, there is a lot of story behind each of these ancient Great Old Ones. And I think putting that in the game is what is going to separate it from any other horror-type game or co-op game. I think giving a personality to these great old ones, I mean, it's already out there. Make sure you're incorporating that in your game, and I think that will also help build the narrative. Yeah, and it's a, it's weird because there's a fine line. We ran into this, and it was something that I was pretty cognizant of when we were designing Fate of the Elder Gods, because not only is there the original mythos, but now there is such an expanded mm-hmm. pantheon and mythos that has been added to it through these games. Like, you know, like for instance, when we put Fade of the Elder Gods in front of people and they go, well, this is different than Fantasy Flight. I'm like, well, yeah, it's our take on it, you know? Some people are saying, well, why don't you do something different? And then when you do something different, somebody goes, well, this isn't what I'm used to. Right, and like, right. You got chocolate in my peanut butter. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, for instance, uh, our take on how Narlet Hotep looks. So we we gave some design kind of ideas to Nolan Nasser, and he said, well, what about this? Came back with this based on uh, some passages that were in uh, an old uh, Lovecraft tale. And we said, yeah, that that seems awesome. Let's go that route. And so it's no longer giant tentacle head. It's uh, there's the mask of death and it has these uh, rugged wings and everything like that. And it matches the description that was given in one of the stories. But when people see it, they think it's cool looking, but then they go, but that's not Narlet Hotep. And I said, no, it's not the Fantasy Flight version of Narlet Hotep. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's it's kind of similar to, because Fantasy Flight is so big and they produce so many games within this mythos, it's almost like the effect of a movie adaptation. Right. You know, like you read Harry Potter, you have your own idea of what these characters are like and how they talk and all this stuff. And then you see the movie and you just cannot separate Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, any of them from those characters anymore. You've kind of lost your creative agency and control over how you experience that story. So yeah, in a way, Fantasy Flight's incredible success and in spreading the mythos, you know, more than like the Chalcium, Call of Cthulhu, original Arkham Horror ever did, has cemented their visions as the one that most people are going to go to. So yeah, really good point there. Yeah, it's a fi- it's a fine line, and it's a it's a weird line to have to tread from a publishing standpoint. But uh, you know, we just decided we'd just chance it and give our own taste of it. And most people have been very very complimentary and and, and uh, receptive to our take on the mythos, which I, I like. That's great. Yeah, cool. Well, any final thoughts on designing Cthulhu games? Go find Richard and make a game with him. But seriously, I think final thoughts would be. Again, just remember, if you do want to dig into the the mythos, number one, try to find a slightly different angle, but above all, know the mythos. Or at least, if you want to design a game that is set in it and you are only peripherally knowledgeable about the mythos, just find somebody else that knows a lot. Find a Cthulhu nerd and ask them questions and, and do your research because, again, this is a very highly immersive and thematic world that people take sometimes too seriously, but... (laughs) (laughs) But they do take it seriously, and it's a very beloved piece of a geekdom that people are protective of. All right, Mike, how about you? If I play your Cthulhu, your Mythos game, and it's a zombie game, I'm not going to play it anymore. <laughs> so make sure, you know, Cthulhu is not zombies. It is not slow-moving things coming after you. I mean, there are zombies in some of the stories, but 
Yeah, just a little additional advice. <laughs> These are both themes that have been heavily explored, but they are not the same theme. No. Yeah, and going back to what Mike said and what I said, definitely a sense of tension, a sense of growing dread, and make sure insanity means something. If you're going to throw it in there, don't just have it be another life counter. Yeah, and again, I think sounds like Mountains of Madness, uh, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, Arkham Horror LCG, the newest one. There are cool mechanics making that work, so hooray. My dreams are fulfilled. All right, well, Chris, so amazing you having you on the show, man. Uh, really awesome, especially for a game that you loved and have so much knowledge about. It was really great. Well, I appreciate it. It's been fun. I'll, I'll talk about, like I said, I'll talk Lovecraft anytime, anywhere. Well, and I know you've been a busy guy. You're on two other podcasts. I guess in the last three days, you've been on three podcasts. So you've got your own, of course, State of Games, right. Geek All-Stars, which I know is Dan's. But mm-hmm. let's be honest, it's yours too. You're on the <laughs> Yeah, it is. I'm, yeah, it's true. And I'd like to go to a quick plug for the Geek All-Stars. <clears throat> I know this will come out after this last one has dropped, but uh, we interviewed John D. Clare, uh, the designer of Edge of Darkness and Mystic Veil and Custom Heroes, because Edge of Darkness is currently on Kickstarter. Oh, great. That's going to be a good listen. So we talked about, about his design philosophies, some of the ins and outs and the ups and downs that he's had in developing Edge of Darkness with AEG. And then we give our thoughts on having played the game, what we think about it, and also about the Kickstarter structure. So if you have any interest in that game whatsoever, go and check out the latest Geek All-Stars because it's going to be a good listen. Well, even for those of you who listen, not for the co-op content, but for the design discussion, you know, that'll be a great place for you to listen as well. Yep. Really cool. All right, Chris. Well, where can people find you on the uh, internet? Uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at DiceHateMe. I'm on Instagram at DiceHateMe. If you Google DiceHateMe, you'll probably find me. <laughs> Absolutely. And go listen to his podcasts and definitely look into DiceHateMe slash Greater Than Games Games as well. Yeah, we got a lot of good ones. Come and check us out. All right, everyone, have a great week, and uh, we'll talk to you in a couple. Absolutely, and don't forget, now we have every other week is going to be us, and then on the off weeks, we're going to have Colin and Steve talking co-op games as well. So make sure you're tuning in every week to hear some great co-op content. We're all grown up, everybody. A podcast <laughs> every week. We made it. <laughs> That's nice. All right, thanks, and see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-OpCast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at MVPBoardGames at gmail.com. All right, uh, Chris, I almost said AJ. My gosh, I, almost, <laughs> <laughs> I can't get anything right tonight. It's a busy week for all of us. Now you see why it takes so long to edit the podcast. <laughs> so I'm going to do something I've never done before, which is break up the outtakes. I'm going to leave a little bit of time after this, so if you want to stop listening, you can now. There's a little bit of a spoiler with one of the event cards in Elder Char after this, but more importantly, there is a little bit of a disturbing story. So if you have young listeners, or if you just don't want to hear something disturbing yourself, go ahead and turn off the episode now and delete it. Didn't want to surprise you with that. So if you want to stop listening for this week, go ahead and stop now, and we look forward to talking to you in two weeks. And... Can't wait to hear what Colin and Steve have coming next week.
really evocative, crazy uh, narrative stories on the encounter cards. And some of them, I mean, God, they did a really good job on those. Something I didn't mention, some of the encounter cards that stick with me. Have you ever had this one, Chris? This one that's so strongly in my memory because it was so disturbing. It's one of the uh, other world encounters in the past. And you're in a closet looking at your own bedroom when you were a child. Yes. And if you fail the roll, your own father busts in with a shotgun and shoots it's... you in the chest. And I'm like, I am so disturbed by this. It is a very I... disturbing one, yes. Oh my gosh. That and that just... takes you back to, you're like, who came up with that? Yeah, it's man. just, it's like, yeah, what? It's bizarre. <laughs> my dreams are fulfilled. My, my dark, <laughs> twisted, nightmarish dreams. <laughs> right. The ones where you watch your father kill you as a small child. <laughs> Oh, man, we're going to have nightmares tonight, jeez. Oh, seriously. <laughs> I guess we should have said spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, for, for that one, yeah, sorry, y'all. If you see that one yeah. other world card, I ruined it for you. Really sorry. <laughs> Good night. Sleep tight. Don't let Cthulhu bite.